How's working from home been going for you? Remarkably Remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload, and relationships to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. For breakfast, our twice weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Ayer. And no, before you ask, we still do not have an update on the draft plans for the NHL, but we did today get some news uh, of a different uh, prospect variety when the AHL officially announced it was going to cancel the remainder of its season. Not exactly a surprise, but Prashant, what do you make of the news? Yeah, I mean, we finally got thrown uh, a little morsel of news with this. Uh, I think ultimately it was an expected decision that uh, was basically a foregone conclusion when, you know, we're already getting into the middle of May and we still haven't heard of any sort of formal plan that's really even been uh, proposed and has gained some traction. And so with uh, the AHL being significantly more dependent on gate revenue. And by gate revenue, I'm talking about uh, putting actual bodies in the stands and having people attend games and giving, given that it just seems less and less likely like that's going to be a feasible thing whenever the, the season were to reopen. It just made a lot of sense that the AHL would go ahead and decide that we're going to cancel the rest of the season. We'll award things kind of based on uh, you know, points percentage where they're at. I think it gives maybe a little bit of a blueprint in terms of how the NHL would proceed in terms of using the points percentage. But, you know, ultimately, I think it was just an expected decision at this point in time. What I think is interesting is, you know, we actually had a a lengthy debate earlier in the uh, season about, you know, the AHL and the value of the AHL playoffs and whether it was kind of worth having the team stick together and um, in the AHL to make the playoff push and the value of that. And it was one of our big disagreements was, was whether or not that was worthwhile. I think we were having that conversation, I want to say in January. At, at I think that was the point to me where I saw Moritz Sider look like he might be ready to hold his own in the NHL. Um, obviously they did not call him up and we don't specifically know, uh, whether that was, you know, for that reason or another, but I, I guess it does kind of lend credence to the fact that, uh, anything can, can happen when you, when you don't, when you, uh, kind of hold your chips for the AHL playoffs. Yeah, Max, it was, it's, I was trying to tell you this back in January that you just go <laughs> ahead and you call him up because you have to be ready for the season to be canceled in the AHL where there's going to be no more games played. So a playoff push wasn't going to matter whatsoever, but it's fine. We're, we're at that point now. You just had to have the foresight that literally the world was going to end. Um, and, and, and that's where we were going to be. But now in all seriousness, I think the important thing now is if the NHL does pursue a scenario where they resume playing games, uh, and resume presumably playing regular season games, this does leave an avenue where a lot of AHL players, presuming that they're already signed, um, 
you know, to a contract that allows them to play in the NHL. Uh, this allows a lot of those AHL guys to potentially get shots um, to be on the NHL roster because, as most of you know, once you hit 12.01 a.m. on the day of the trade deadline, the 23-man roster limit is gone. And so now at that point, there goes into place this uh, this call-up rule where you're allowed a max of four call-ups until the AHL season is over, typically April 30th. And so we're now past that and the AHL is canceled. Afterwards, there really is no roster limit, presumably as long as the player is signed to a contract that allows them to play in the NHL. So now what you might see by this happening is it really just paves the way that if and when the NHL does resume their season, they may carry a lot of these quote-unquote black aces, as what they used to be called, um, on their roster in order to... um, you know, have more bodies available in the event that you have significant injuries. Yeah, I mean, that is if the if the eliminated teams are included in a return to play. I mean, certainly if, if there's like a true regular season, uh, then I guess that would be certainly an option and one that I think you and I would both kind of endorse um, the Red Wings taking that opportunity to give some of their AHL guys a, a look in the AHL or in the NHL. Um, but if they go to the 24 team, you know, model, the one that's been kind of floated, that's almost more tournament style than anything in the early stages. Um, this could end up meaning that not only the Red Wings, but the Red Wings prospects could end up going, what, eight, nine months without playing? Yeah, and that's another piece to all of this here is, you know, over the last few days, it sounds like the two most serious proposals that the NHL has going right now is one, this 2014 playoff um, that they've talked about with potentially a run-in of um, you know, some, uh, regular season games leading up, or the alternative being just going to 16 teams and just playing the playoffs without really having a regular season. And you're sorting based on playoff percentage. So either way, you're really leaving out the bottom seven, uh, teams no matter what. Um, and so exactly like you said, Max, it may be months. It may be a full calendar year if, if the NHL decides that. Um, you know, they have to wait into 2021 before they can get games going again. So it's going to be a long time to sit for some of these guys. And, uh, you know, the ramifications for development could be huge, particularly for guys that don't have great access to um, facilities or equipment to allow them to stay in the same kind of game readiness shape. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's going to really put a, um, you know, a, a big onus on what, you know, whenever the world opens up to the point that players can get to gyms and get skating again, it is going to probably put some kind of extra demands on, on players from teams who are going to miss out on a, on a full training camp if that's the direction that it goes. And and you never know. I mean, I, I wonder what's better. Is it to have the short rest of the team that's going to ultimately, if they do this, win the Stanley Cup or the long rest of a team that's not going to skate for eight months but also the rust? I mean, I guess you can combat it with a lot of training, um, but I don't know. I, I, I think next year is going to be one of the strangest years of hockey, if there is hockey, um, of my life, if not the strangest year. Cause it's almost, you're all, you're almost combining like a lockout and a premature end into one, like a half season lockout and a premature end. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's very, very interesting in terms of, you know, the proposals that we've heard that have really been leaked this far by the NHL with potentially, you know, playing games you know, late into the fall for, to conclude the 2019-2020 season. Um, I mean, that, 
running up right on the start of potentially a 2020, 2021 season. I mean, that's even crazier. Um, so it's just, you, you have no idea, um, you know, how wild and crazy this could potentially get. We have, you know, no insight as to what the NHL is ultimately going to do here, but all the concerns from previous lockout years where now you've got a condensed schedule, they're already talking about the potential of having all these AHL guys available just due to the potential injury burden from having guys that are not in game readiness shape. And I think no matter what, no matter how you train, you're just not ready for NHL game action. So I think you're going to see almost a war of attrition, if you will, over the next year and a half as these two seasons are, are sorted out and it'll be really, really interesting to see kind of what kind of long-term ramifications you have here. Yeah, it'll be interesting. And I, I'm, I'm also curious. I mean, this was kind of the, the center of our debate back in January, but you know, I, I know I felt maybe more strongly about this than you, but I think even regardless of the NHL opportunity, I think just losing the playoff run for these young guys matters a lot maybe as much as anything when it comes to the Red Wings in this situation because you were going to have a chance to have even even if the Griffins didn't go incredibly far in the playoffs which is not a guarantee um they were going to play really meaningful hockey for the next month battling for what was a really tight playoff spot really really tight race in their division yeah I mean that's exactly it like uh you were going to get meaningful hockey games for those guys you were going to get uh, obviously more information on prospects from the Memorial Cup uh, and a lot of the different uh, playoffs. We're missing out on U18s for prospects. You're missing out on, you know, playoffs over in Europe. Uh, you have guys like Albert Johansson who was having a great back half of the year, have their seasons cut short. I mean, ultimately you're losing so, so much of potentially valuable hockey for these guys that I – I just don't know that there's any way to project how much this impacts their uh, development. And, and we don't really have a frame of reference to go on because in previous lockout years, all these guys went over to Europe. They went over and played over there. Uh, you didn't, you know, the only league that wasn't really going was the NHL. So you got to have guys still get some form of game action, uh, which allowed them to stay in shape and, and again, continue to build on uh, a lot of the principles that the, they've been working on. So really you're losing just so much game experience, physical learning, um, and ultimately I think valuable mental experience moving forward for a lot of the young guys. Yeah, absolutely. Who do you think uh, is most affected? I guess we can, we don't have to rank them, but is there a, is there a player who you think is going to lose the most in, in this situation? Yeah. I mean, if, you know, looking at the way the Red Wings were planning on utilizing the rest of their season, it, it sure seemed like Moritz Sider was not going to be making an appearance in the NHL, um, or at a bare minimum, he was going to be seeing very few games. So he's a guy where he was just having a monster AHL year and playing really, really well as a rookie, he was really finding a stride, like you said, Max, and in January, and the Griffins were starting to find their game overall with Valeno picking it up, Rasmussen coming back from injury. Uh but I really think Sider's the big guy affected. And then kind of secondarily, Michael Rasmussen, who effectively missed most of this year with injuries and just never was able to get in any so, sort of sustained rhythm. I think he's a guy that loses a huge opportunity to uh, kind of find his game after having that tough year last year. 
Uh, and so he's a, he's another big one. And then for me, the third guy really is Dennis Chalowski, who again, now we're a few years out from his draft year. He's been up and down, up and down, really needed to get some more good games in. I think having a good playoff run would have really helped his confidence moving into next year where he's expected to be on the roster again from day one. So I, I really think that those are the three big guys that, that lost a lot from this stoppage. Yeah, I, I, uh, I like that with that last one, especially Chalowski. I'm going to go in a kind of similar direction with both of mine, and that would be Rasmussen and Evgeny Svechnikov. Svechnikov, because he's already lost so much time to injury, and I think this only really compounds it that he, you know, can't be on the ice. Although maybe there's something good to kind of him getting a little extra time, uh, to, to just recover. I guess that could maybe be the blessing in disguise for him. But then Rasmussen, who lost a big chunk in the middle of this season and really, by uh, by you know most expectations should be kind of expected a challenge for a roster spot potentially even like on the third line next next training camp um i think those playoffs would have been a huge opportunity for him to establish that you know that that he has kind of made it in the AHL he's learned what he needs to learn and he can really contend i do wonder if that affects his ability to win a job next fall yeah, and, and now the tricky part for a lot of these guys is you're going to see them run into the same scenarios that uh, if you remember maybe three or four years back, if you looked at the Red Wings defensive prospects and you had guys like Alexei Marchenko, Ryan Sproul, uh, you know, Xavier Roulette, those were all guys that, you know, had the opportunities, had the opportunities needed to establish themselves, needed to take those next steps. None of them ever really did, and then they got overrun by the next crop of guys that were coming through their draft class, those guys being Philip Hironik and, and now Dennis Chalowski. And so for guys like Rasmussen, guys like Valeno, or Valeno not to the same extent given that he's got, uh, he was drafted after Rasmussen, but really Rasmussen and Chalowski, I think, are the two big ones where they now have to make sure that they don't get overrun by the next wave of guys because you know, if the Red Wings do pick second overall and they bring a Quinton Byfield in or where they pick fourth overall and they bring a Marco Rossi or a, or a Cole Perfetti or another, uh, you know, center or winger up front, you're now talking about jobs that are potentially being lost for some of those guys. So they really, really missed out on a huge opportunity to take a big step forward. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, those are some guys, too, where unlike like a Luke Lindenning or uh, Dylan Larkin or any of these NHL guys that you expect to maybe be a little better equipped, you know, whether it's just financially or at the stage of their lives to 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 really successfully work out at home. They've been through those off seasons solo. I, I think about like prospects as being guys who, you know, they move to Detroit in the summer because they want to really be involved and, and hands on and they're working out and all of that stuff is just affected by this. It, it's, I, I mean, I guess we've known that all along, but I think it really gets hammered home when you when you start to think about the scale and how exactly how much time off they're going to have and all that. Yeah, I think that's a great point to bring up and kind of one I was alluding to a little bit earlier in terms of the ability to stay in game readiness shape. Right. You know, there's a huge difference between the access the star players have, the NHL established players have two training facilities, whether it be in their own home because they've got the millions of dollars to do it, uh, versus some of these other guys who may not be in uh, the same situation. I kind of liken it a little bit to the situation you see in professional tennis where you've got guys who are maybe in the lower 100s uh, to even around that 1,000 mark that just don't have the same 
access to ball machines, to courts, to rackets, to stringers, to mm. things like that, that you would need in order to really stay in that game readiness shape. Um, and that's really, they're, they're still fighting for their livelihood at that point. And that's what I think about uh, for a lot of the AHL guys where they don't necessarily have that same money incentive, um, even some of the lower draft pick guys and, and access to the training equipment to be able to stay in that same shape as as a guy like Dylan Larkin who may have a home gym and, and or some of the other guys like that. So uh, really tricky scenario all around, and it's just a, it's a huge crux of time that's lost for these guys. Yeah, absolutely. I did get a chance to talk to Ben Simon a little bit uh, today after the season was kind of officially canceled. So uh, some updates, I guess, on, on guys. It's not really updates. They're just kind of, you know, progress uh, reports. And I don't think there was anything – you know, groundbreaking in there. Obviously, very happy with Mord Sider's first season, and uh, you know, the, I thought he, the, the point that he made about the. Uh, I mean, obviously, everyone knows by now. I believe that Mord Sider's, you know, kind of personal maturity is quite high in how he conducts himself. But I think that was an area where Ben Simon thought his on ice maturity was one of his biggest progress zones throughout the year, and that that usually comes down to decision making, which you know, I I do think is something that was one of the selling points. If I remember back to the draft night. But knowing when to really jump up into the play and and when to to hang back and those are things that I think um, as Moritzider continues to get more and more minutes uh, are things that can really be separating tools for him decision making but also the fact that I think there is part of him that I don't know if this got talked up very much at his uh, at his draft and around his draft because no one really knew a lot about him. So I think he got labeled into really this like stay at home guy. Um, but there is like an aggressive streak in there to him, not just physically, but in terms of wanting to jump into the offense. And so I think the balance there of having that is great. And knowing when to actually do it is a, as being a, uh, an area where he showed a lot of growth this year. I think those are both really good things. Yeah, I completely agree. And again, like that playoffs would have been just a totally different beast to get him to really learn from some mistakes in that respect, I think uh, having the opportunity to learn the right times to pinch, the right times to make moves, the right times to uh, kind of chase that puck, let that puck go, step up to make that hit, fall back. Those are all you know different experiences that you get as you step up in level and intensity. And so, you know, just a huge loss for him. But again, the guy's been such a smart kid. He's such a hard worker. You know, based on all the reports you've gotten from guys like Sean Horkoff and, and, and Ben Simon, that you have to imagine that ultimately this doesn't have a huge impact on his development. Other thing I thought was uh, was interesting. He made this point over the first twenty nine, I think, or so games uh, of the season before the World Juniors. Joe Valeno was a minus twenty two. Now, keep in mind, he did finish the year as the the worst plus minus on the Griffins. I know we don't like that as a stat broadly, but I think the discrepancy here is quite interesting. Over the final twenty five games, so after he got back from the World Juniors, just a minus three after being minus twenty two in the first half of the year. Um, it's been hard to kind of quantify at all his progress from the start of the year to the end, even though I observed it. You know, whenever I would be there or watching on TV, you could see the growth he was making. That I think is the closest that I have come to hearing a stat that helps illustrate it, even if number one, it's still a minus and even and number two, it's still plus minus, which I know uh, we don't like as a stat in general. But I think that that, that was an interesting, that was an interesting way to, um, to show how much better uh, his, his overall play got from training camp to the end of the year. 
Yeah, and, and again, plus minus, you know, we don't necessarily love it as a stat. Unfortunately, the AHL doesn't really give you a lot to go exactly. off of. So you're, you're sort of stuck using um, things that are less desirable. But I think it's also important to remember that guys like Philip Zadina struggled mightily last year. His mm-hmm. plus minus was not great. Um, in fact, his plus minus was pretty bad last year. I want to say it was also the worst on the Griffins, if I remember correctly. Uh, pulling that off the top of my head there. So, Max, you can fact check me on that. But oh, I, I, I think... I think ultimately it, it, it doesn't have a huge bearing on the kind of player he's going to be. Like, I don't think you can say that just because he's a minus 22 or a minus 25 or whatever, that he's not going to be an impactful defensive player. I think ultimately it's him problem solving at the next level, learning what that entails, and then getting better as the season progresses. And so, uh, you know, being able to see that level of progression for a player I think is huge. And so getting that kind of minus 22 to minus three over a similar sample is encouraging that Valeno is starting to figure it out. But I think it also still tells you that this guy's not necessarily ready to jump to the NHL at the beginning of next year. He may benefit from problem solving a little bit more. I agree. And I think the Philip Zadina timeline, it, it, to go off the comparison you're making there, is dead on. I think you start him in the AHL. I don't think he has to be up by Christmas like Zadina was. But I think, you know, that's possible that a similar jump could be in play where, you know, an injury strikes, he has to come up to, to fill the opportunity and he manages to stay there. Uh, but I, I agree. I don't think that's something that, um, I don't think you're rushing him onto the team by any means. You are exactly right that Zadina had the worst plus minus on the Griffins last year. It was minus 17. And just to come full circle about why we don't like plus mi- plus minus, would you like to guess the two leaders in plus minus on the 2018-19 Grand Rapids Griffins? Oh, it's got to be Brian Lashaw. It's got to be up there. No, that would actually be, I think, accurate. He really oh, does oh. tilt the ice for them. I was going to say, I was like, I'm th- trying to think of names that uh, actually tilt the ice. Uh, Eric Tangrady? Nope. I don't think he was on the team last year. He, he came back this oh, year. Oh, that's, that's right. That's right. He came back this year, not last year. Huh, I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm a little lost They're here. They're both defensemen. Neither both is defensemen. with the organization anymore that I'm aware of. Oh, okay. Well, now now you're making me reach back too much. You just got to give it to me here. <laughs> it's Billy Seriarvi and Jake Chelios. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jake Chelios is one I should have thought of because, uh, that yeah, that just goes to show you how much it really matters. And I think a lot of it's situational for these guys where, um, you know, if you play them in the right scenarios where they get to duck a lot of the tougher assignments – they're going to look pretty darn good. So uh, I think to a certain extent, that's what you got to see there. Jake Chelios actually, I did, I did think he looked fine when he came up for Detroit at the end of last year. I don't know that he was, you know, ever going to really be an NHLer, but I, I guess I should say, like, he did he did play well in his opportunity last year. Yeah, I mean, he, he was a guy where, again, he was a warm body that the Wings right. really exactly. needed at the end of last year and right. and was able to to make things work. Yeah, so there we go. Yep. All right. Well, any other thoughts on the end of the season or anything, any curiosities that you have about that, that maybe I, I don't know, I I may have something relatively new on. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see, Max. Uh, No, as of now, I think it's, uh, I think it's ultimately more expected news. I don't know that it necessarily indicates anything in terms of when the NHL is going to, uh, you know, make their decisions. I think ultimately this was just something that needed to be done was a formality that was planning on happen, so I don't think it has any impact on the NHL timeline. Yep, I would tend to agree. And I, I wonder, like, you know, is it – I a week ago I was expecting to hear, like, moments after our podcast went up what the draft order – or not the draft order, what the draft plan was. 
And then when that didn't happen, I was expecting to hear by the end of the week. And then when that didn't happen, I was expecting to hear today. And now I think it's 6.30 as we're recording. I'm not really expecting to hear today. And I don't know if I'm expecting to hear anytime soon. It seems like the, the, the buzz has really just dropped out of the bottom on, on needing to get this figured out quickly. Yeah. And, and what I think ultimately happened is what I was saying on the last episode where I think they leaked it. Everyone hated it. Uh, and they were like, Oh shoot. I didn't realize it'd be that bad. I think the public maybe drew to light some of the issues that, uh, maybe GMs hadn't necessarily thought of where they had thought of, but hadn't as strongly voiced them. And now everyone's like, Oh yeah, we, there's a lot of problems here that we need to fix. Uh, so it's going to be a while. Um, and I think really the big thing was that was really raised was we need to sort out what we're doing with the regular season before we get ahead of ourselves with the draft here. And I think that's what's taking so long is they want to sort out the regular season. And I can't fault them as much as I know all of our listeners, uh, really want the, really want the answer. We, you and I really want the answer. We want to know uh, what, what's going on here, but. Um, I, I think it's the right call to at least, uh, you know, figure out what the, the big picture plan is and not try to build the big picture plan around the draft plan. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, all we care about is the draft plan for, we don't need to see any more Red Wings hockey in 2019, 2020. I'm okay with that. Uh, we, we saw what we saw and we saw what we needed to see too. So I'm good just, just cruising here for the draft, but obviously, that doesn't apply to the other 30 teams, uh, Ottawa included. I'm going to spring this on you because I don't, I doubt you've seen it yet. It came out five minutes ago from, uh, Mark Seidel from North American Central Scouting Independent Bureau, top, uh, 31 for the upcoming draft. Do you want to, uh, guess where some players are, uh, are rated or do you just want me to tell you? Is this, uh, this is top 31 combining North America and Europe? That's right. So, all right. So I'm going to guess he puts Stutzla at two without even Three. looking. Three. Three. Okay. Yep. So then uh, I'm going to guess, let's see. So obviously Lafreniere, Byfield, Stutzla. Um, I'm going to guess probably at four. Uh, he has Jamie Drysdale. Nope. Drysdale's a five. Mm-hmm. All right. So then he put Raymond at four. No. No. Holtz nope. or Perfetti. No. Nope. He's just swinging for the board here. Askarov. No, nope. throwing names. <laughs> Askarov's at six. What? All right, I already. He did like you a play. solid. He put your guy Marco. Marco Rossi. I just couldn't imagine that he put Marco Rossi at four. So all right, I'll take it. Um, I mean, that's a Jake, that's a reasonable. Jake Sanderson is at seven above oh, Perfetti, no. Raymond Holtz. Okay, well, I was about to say that that was a reasonable <laughs> list, but now uh, it's no longer a reasonable list if you've got Yaroslav Askarov at six and uh, Jake Sanderson at seven. That's a list that's uh, that's not what I want to see. Where are you at on the Swedes, by the way? I don't know if we've talked about them nearly as much, especially in the recent months. I mean, coming into the season, they were in the top four, I would say, solidly. Yeah, I mean, coming into the season, Lucas Raymond was right there with Quentin Byfield for right. second overall. And I think what you ultimately saw happen was while Quentin Byfield goes and plays in the OHL, uh, Lucas Raymond is playing a little under 10 minutes a night for a, a good team in, in the top league in Sweden. And Alexander Holtz is playing a little over 12 minutes a night, uh, for the, in, in the SHL as well. And I think it's important to remember that the SHL is a supremely good league. We're talking about, uh, in all likelihood, the third best league in the world behind the NHL and the KHL, uh, 
Uh, I think it's right there. I think it's even slightly better than the AHL. So you are talking about a really, really good league. Um, and for those guys to be 17 years old playing in those leagues and, and not getting a lot of ice time, uh, it's kind of similar to what Red Wings fans saw and heard a little bit last year when we were talking about Moritz Sider being a guy that was getting four minutes a night, five minutes a night, six minutes a night, really tough to scout because he was playing on a top team in the DEL, which admittedly is not as good of a league as the SHL. But all that being said, I think the flashes you've seen from from Raymond and from Alexander Holtz uh, is more than enough to, to tell you that these guys are excellent players. I think Raymond maybe has one of the bigger boom or bust potentials in that he's a very, very gifted player. And if he can put all the pieces together, he has the potential to be the second best player in this draft. No doubt about it. And I think Alexander Holtz, I think I want to say it was Scott Wheeler who said this when he was on our uh, show a couple weeks back. But Alexander Holtz is potentially the best scorer in this draft. Uh, and it was pretty obvious early on with him. So he started off the year in actually the Super Elite, which is kind of the Swedish Junior League, if you will, scored seven goals in three games. They realized, all right, they, we can't we can't play him in this league, so we need to move him up. And so he gets moved up to the SHL where, again, scoring 16 points in 35 games while playing 12 minutes a night is pretty solid for him. At the World Juniors, uh, you know, he had three goals, five assists, and seven games played. Uh, so I think ultimately you saw a lot of flashes of, of talent from these guys. I think they're both squarely top eight players. I think Raymond's a little bit better in terms of his all-around game. I think the way he comes after the puck, uh, particularly on the defensive side of things, is he's very dogged in terms of pursuing it. Uh, so I think his his two-way game has a higher ceiling than Holtz. That being said, I mean, I think Holtz is, is the best scorer in this draft, the best sniper, the best shooter, uh, almost kind of a Patrick Line type player, if you will. Yeah, I like Holtz's stick checks a lot, or not, sorry, not Holtz, uh, Raymond's stick checks a lot too. Like, he really does compete, and I, I think it's interesting that he kind of has a reputation as a quote-unquote small player. I mean, I, he's not... He's not a Hulk, but he's five eleven. He's like one inch shorter than Jack Quinn, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, he's not a huge player, but I mean, you know, Holtz and Quinn are probably the two premier snipers in this draft. So, and uh, Holtz is five eleven, and Quinn is six foot. So, you know, I five eleven and a half, I guess, for Holtz. I mean, I I think both of those Swedes though. Like, I I think a lot of them, and I remember watching them in Plymouth at the World Junior Summer Showcase, and. Um, yeah, there's a lot, a lot there to like. All right. Um, shall we head into the questions? Yep. Let's do it. Cody Stark wants to know the most underrated Red Wings lines of, uh, of our memory, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, a few weeks back, we, we talked about the, the best lines in, uh, recent Red Wing history. I think over the last decade, I think, uh, Cody in his question kind of mentions the, the Franzen, uh, Zetterberg, Todd Bertuzzi line that was very, very dominant in, in a short stretch together. I think that was a great line. I think the line I'm going to throw out is one I believe I mentioned on the episode, which was Riley Shahan, Thomas Tatar, and uh, Thomas Yurko, which was uh, a line that got put together with all of, the, all of those guys really coming up from Grand Rapids together. They played really, really well together. They controlled about 60% of the shot share about that much in terms of the goals scored. 
they played a fair amount of time together. I want to say this is the 2015 season, if I'm remembering correctly, and they played primarily as Red Wings' third line, and they gave them a great puck possession line from there. That's almost what your ideal checking line looks like, is a line of guys that are dogged after the puck, uh, but mostly skilled players that the way they check you is by consistently playing with the puck and getting after you. So uh, I think that's a line that doesn't get as much credit, you know, five, six years into the future, but they were a really, really good line together. Yeah, I mean, underrated, I'd probably have to say, like, uh, Shanahan, Iserman, Fedorov, or something like, you know, <laughs> just a line that's not going to get any fanfare. Yeah, something I mean, like you that. know, that, those, those bums didn't really do anything whatsoever. Um, no, I'm they're underrated. I'm just saying, I'm just saying people didn't notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's fair. That's fair. We all saw the Stanley Cups, but, but missed that piece. Exactly. No one, no one realizes that those guys played a key role in. <laughs> No, but actually, you know, you know, along those same lines, I think it's important to also call out that, you know, on the 97 and 98 teams, the line wasn't really Shanahan, Fedorov, Iserman. It was Fedorov, Kozlov, Larianov. And, okay. and they were part of that Russian five line. And, and that was, that was a supremely talented uh, line. And I bet if we had puck possession stats for uh, that era, that line probably had a Corsi four percentage near 70%. That's how dominant they were. So maybe that's the answer. That could be the answer. I think uh, that line just doesn't get talked about as much in the pantheon of lines outside of just saying Russian five. But those three, specifically Slava Kozlov, doesn't get talked about enough. I was like three, so I I actually don't even know. But I'll defer to you. Um, Eric Baker says, uh, which prospects are you the most – oh, we actually already answered that one too – um, Jay wants to know, is preparing to cover a virtual draft any different than a normal draft for you? Do you have any thoughts about this? No, I mean, I'm doing the same thing that I would normally do, which is uh, pretend to know stuff about the draft. So um, nothing really different on my end. It's actually very different for me, but not because the draft is virtual, because so much as because the combine and, and those kind of events have been canceled. Um, that's usually the kind of event where you go, you talk to a lot of people, including the prospects, you see who's meeting with who and how things went. And you, you know, you might see people around having, you know, dinner with a team and then you start to say, okay, there might be real interest there. Um, it's much harder. I think this way to learn little bits of information when you're not kind of in the place where the event is happening and you're not getting to know the prospects at all person to person. Um, I don't think the combine for me is particularly valuable as a reporter to watch, you know, guys do the VO2 max and pull-ups or whatever. I think it's very valuable in just the volume of people you can talk to in like a three or four day window. And so it's very different from that perspective, but it has actually nothing to do with draft day. Covering the actual draft will be incredibly different on draft day because I don't know how any of it's going to work. Whereas before, um, you know, they have the whole setup. They bring the prospect through kind of like a, a media, um, I don't know what you even call it, carnival, where like they just bring them along to several stops. You There's a lot of people in the audience you can go talk to in the stands. Um, you know, you, you talk to the, the GM and the scouting director usually at the end of the day. Um, I'm curious, are they just going to do all of it digitally? You know, y- you can't really... I don't know how they'll do it if there's a broadcast, but um, you can't really see people pick up their phone and, and know that someone's having a conversation uh, if they're not airing it on TV this way. So I think it will be very different um, in the actual coverage day of, but preparation-wise, it has everything to do with the combine and nothing to do with the uh, 
the actual like fact that the draft will be virtual. Yeah, you know, more than anything, I'm really excited because this is going to be an opportunity, depending on how they, uh, uh, you know, do this, it, to really showcase how well connected certain people are. Um, because that's really the only way you're going to know who actually knows certain information and who doesn't, because you're exactly right. Like, we're not getting to observe anything that's happening right now. So no one has any idea what's going on. And, and even depending on how much of that combine gets broadcast, you, you really just aren't going to have much clue outside of the people who are really, really well connected. I think that's fair. Okay, um, <laughs> this is an interesting one. This was from my live chat this week on the website. And I didn't really, you know, when you're going through those, you're kind of just flying through answers. So I didn't really have the time to think about it. But Luke Y asks, what's the worst player you could add to the Red Wings roster that would make them a playoff team? In other words, it's going to be a good player, but like kind of what's the threshold for one player you could add to make them a playoff team. His suggestion is that McDavid would do it, but someone like Barzal would still not. So, um, you know, somewhere in between uh, there. Do you agree with that? Do you think there's one player? I, I actually kind of wonder, does McDavid make the Red Wings a playoff team? Uh, yeah, I was going to say my answer is is Lemieux, Gretzky. <laughs> uh, because I, I don't think McDavid makes the Red Wings, the current Red Wings, a playoff team. Because, I mean, again, just think back a couple years ago, really before Dreisaitl ascended uh, to his kind of MVP pace campaign this year, uh, where were the Oilers? And they were still a lottery team. Um, they weren't they weren't playing in the playoffs. So I, uh, I don't think McDavid takes this team to the, uh, the, the playoffs. And that, so that's where I think my answer is, is somewhere between, you know, Mario Lemieux and and maybe peak Yarmir Yager. It's somewhere there. I was going to say Nick Lidstrom because I think the blue line is an area where there's so much room for improvement. And I think like if you if you started next year and you trot out a lineup that has um, Lidstrom and DeKaiser and Nemeth on the left side, those are all minute eaters. You maybe even move Nemeth over to the right side to help out Heronic and Sider. I think that defense suddenly goes from like the worst in the league to middle of the pack, prime Lidstrom, I should say. Um, that's how good Nick Lidstrom is, but I still think you're only scoring two goals a game and maybe Lidstrom helps the offense just enough. I think you're a bubble team with Nick Lidstrom. Yeah, I, I think Lidstrom could, could pull you close. Um, you know, cause instantly you would have Lidstrom as the Red Wings best defenseman. Lidstrom's D partner is now the second best Red Wings defenseman. It doesn't matter who it is. They're now the second best, uh, uh, defenseman. And so then after that, you might be able to push some guys down the lineup. I would almost pair a guy like, uh, you know, a guy like Trevor Daly or Jonathan Erickson with Nick Lidstrom because you can't play bad with Nick Lidstrom. Uh, he took Ian White to being a, a really good defenseman for the one year that they played together. Um, he really dragged everyone up. So you, you just couldn't be a bad player on the ice with him. Uh, so you'd almost do that and try and save your Philip Aronik and, and Danny DeKaiser and the rest of the guys to play after Nick Lidstrom and also let Lidstrom play 30 minutes a night like he used to do. And and maybe you could cover up enough of the, the defense, but I, I still don't know that he takes him to the playoffs. Yeah, I think that's fair. Jake uh, Jake L. asks, what do you think of the NHL's ability to market its players? Other than the P.K. Subban quiz show, it seems they're doing a lot less in other leagues online. Uh, what do you think about the NHL's ability to market their star players? 
I think this is a huge problem for the NHL, and it's a big reason why they lag behind in popularity um, relative to some of the other leagues. I mean, they, they always make the excuse that, oh, well, our players are covered up more. Um, you know, they, they've got more equipment on. It's harder to see them. I mean, football's got just as much equipment on as hockey. Uh, you're, you know, they're all wearing helmets where you can't even see their faces whatsoever, uh, more or less. But there's a huge difference in marketability uh, for a lot of those players. And I don't think it's necessarily tied to the game that they play. I think a lot of it is hockey culture to a certain extent, where a lot of the personality kind of gets taken out of these guys uh, coming in. Like, I, you just don't have the real character-type players. Um, and I And if they are that, it's sort of hidden or kind of suggested that maybe it not be as flaunted as much Otherwise, you get guys like P.K. Zuban who get labeled as, you know, there's behavior issues. You got Mike Milbury ripping them on national TV for dancing uh, before a playoff game and, and things like that. So I think a lot of it is just the culture of hockey kind of beats out the personality of some of these players. I mean, you know, one of the most marketable guys that should have been really marketable for a while is Jonathan Taze, and he gets the nickname of Captain Serious. Because the guy is just pure and simple, the hockey player, uh, and that's it. And so I just, I think there was a lot that the NHL could do, but I think ultimately it's a much bigger issue than simply marketing the guys. I think you have to address the, the overarching problem, which is the culture along the way kind of beats out that personality. I agree. And this is an area where, you know, I, I don't know that it's, it's as common as sometimes, um, you know, it might be easier to uh, often like blame the, you know, the governing body, and I, I don't think that's unfair uh, in this instance. But it is something that I think fans can take kind of a direct part in fixing. Is that like, you know, one of the issues is whenever a player says or does something that is a little pushing the boundary, you know, these ideas like when Dylan Larkin says, you know, jokingly whatever about you know wanting some rest. <laughs> the level that he was jumped on, not just by like media and stuff like that. You know, there was, there was reaction on Twitter and all this stuff. So it, it can start in some ways from the fans too, because the more that, you know, you allow the players to be human and make jokes and say things that don't always need to be held to, uh, you know, the utmost severity, the more that you're going to see the personalities, I think of the players come out. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, I think all of that criticism of Larkin, I think that's a great example of it. That's the culture problem. That's what, again, a lot of the people that are, you know, accustomed to watching hockey, you have that one speck of personality flow out. I mean, it's a humorous joke, and now it's like, ah, oh, he shouldn't be the captain of the Detroit Red Wings. And it's like, really? Really? We saw, you know, you have a guy like Alex Ovechkin who is wins the Stanley Cup and is drinking beer in a fountain in public, and we can't seem to market that better. Um it's so it's it's just fascinating that uh, you have this this much of an issue, and, and I think ultimately it's a top down problem from the culture about the sport more than anything else. I do wonder, you know, like they, that, that commercial, the old uh, Crosby Ovechkin room service commercial was going around Twitter today, and I forget who made the comment. If it might have been Sarah, it might have been Joe or something, uh, Joe Joe Yurden or, or someone else. Um, but they made the comment like, you know, look how fun this commercial is. And it does almost seem like it's gone backward 
in the willingness to engage with that stuff. Like I remember early in Ovechkin's career, there did seem to be a lot more kind of like viral marketing of him with, you know, the Ovech trick commercials and all that stuff that didn't even demand that much. It was just, you know, more willingness to be silly with it. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. Like you're, you're talking about, um, you know, the Ovech trick commercials. There's a great commercial with the Sedin twins where they come over and are dancing. Like, and you think about when all of these commercials were, um, they're more than a decade ago. Like one of my favorite commercials, and this one ran, uh, during the 2008 playoffs was the Verizon commercial, uh, where there was a new dad who had just had a baby and they're literally viewing all the babies yes. through the nursery. And then he's just, <laughs> he's banging on the glass yelling, baby. And he's like, loser, loser, like going across all of That's like, that's such a great commercial. And you can have a little bit of marketability and fun with all of that. We're talking about commercials that are more than a decade old. Like, uh, there was just no, you know, there, there should have been so much more done, uh, with it. And I think it's, it's just gone by the wayside. You know what I will say? I don't, I think the Red Wings have actually done a, a pretty good job in the last, you know, year or so, year and a half, um, of, of, doing more with this and, and their social team, I think. I'm sure you've seen kind of the videos where they'll have, you know, like Philip Zadina interview Philip Hronik and uh, Madison Bowie did one with Fetchnikov and uh, stuff like that. I think they're doing a better job of, of you, you have to let the player be themselves. And that usually means just having the player do it. It doesn't always have to mean, you know, the league needs to do these interviews or whatever or, or kind of pre-written commercials, even though I, those commercials we listed, I do love those commercials. But I think if you just turn it over to the player and say, like, you know, this is what, you know, be you and do this, that I think can work. And in that at least capacity, I, there's been a few examples of, of the Red Wings, I think, doing a better job of that. Yeah, and I think a large part of that is all – kind of due to the Red Wings are really turning over this veteran-laden roster right. that they've had for the last 25 years. And now you've got a lot of youth on this team for the first time in a long time. And the youth is the predominant part of this team. So I think the Red Wings are starting to capitalize on that. And I think they'll be smart uh, to continue to market that as they move forward because you're seeing a lot of the teams that are you know very young teams starting to do better and better jobs with the marketing of their players, you know, with the Toronto Maple Leafs and Austin Matthews fashion and, and the mustache. You, you saw a little bit more of that this year. I think uh, the Carolina Hurricanes do a great job with their players and the in-game entertainment. Um, they have, you know, these guys play heads up against each other. A lot of these random miscellaneous games, it's, it's a lot of fun to watch. So I think the Red Wings are starting to jump on that bandwagon realizing there's there's a market out there. So hopefully this isn't a problem in the next decade when we're looking back and saying man things got even worse yeah ultimately i think it comes down to like you know to to wrap this up like uh, on the 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 topic of fans and culture and all that stuff it it just comes down to the idea that once we all accept that it is possible to both work hard and be serious about your job and your craft and also have a little fun on the side and that those two things you know playing Fortnite or whatever people got mad about a couple years ago doesn't have to mean that you don't care about your hockey career like the more you can accept these are people and that you know as much as they have incredible jobs, very cool jobs that they love and that do demand a lot of hard work, that doesn't mean they're also not going to be able to have a good time and let loose a little bit too. The more you accept that, I think the more you'll see it. Yeah, I I can't agree with that enough. All right. Uh, Last one, Christopher Boyd wants to know, if the salary cap is flat or worse next year, how many contracts would you foresee the Red Wings taking on next year? 
I mean, I think the the answer, the reasonable answer here is one. Yeah. Um, and it'll be tough to kind of identify it given that a couple of the big ones, notably the David Backus one, which I was talking about for really most of the year, already moved. And I can't see Anaheim, you know, feeling the need to move that. Um, but all that being said, I think they'll still have the cap space to, to take one. It's just who who really needs it. I think the team right now that really needs cap space moving forward is St. Louis, depending on what they decide to do with Alex Petrangelo. I think a lot of their moves made this year kind of indicate that uh, they don't foresee him to be a huge part of the future. Um, and if that's the case, then fine, they maybe walk away from him. But if they do want to make another run at him, they're going to need to make some moves. So that's a guy, or that's a team, I should say, that you could look at to, to poach a contract. And then the other one really is, is Tampa, because if you think about, uh, you know, they're restricted free agents with Anthony Sorelli and with, uh, you know, Mikhail Sergachev, you either make the decision that you're going to offer sheet them, but that involves giving up a lot of picks, or you, you try and say, hey, Tampa, I'll do you a solid and I'll take a, a Tyler Johnson and Alex Kalorn, um, but you got to give me something to, to do it. And so um, those are maybe the two teams where I would look to try and poach a contract, um, you know, to move forward. Because, again, in Detroit's perspective, you want to take a contract that's not too, too long-term, um, but is just long enough that a team is desperate to move away from it. And that's where I think maybe the Tyler Johnson one's one that, uh, you could get away with, you could swallow that pill. It's not an awful contract, but freeing up four and a half million for Tampa over the next three years would allow them to keep a guy like Sorelli probably. Yeah. I would say you're going to cap it at like one, you know, like I, I understand the idea of like, Hey, you, you, you take on a bad contract and you get kind of a carrot for it. Um, that's great. But as much as two carrots sounds even better, Two bad contracts is actually pretty bad. Like then you're getting to the point where you're going to really actually give yourself problems depending on the length of those contracts. And if they're not long, that's going to be reflected in kind of the asset you're able to get back. So the answer could be zero, to be honest, depending on uh, some of the timing of when all the offseason key points happen. And it could be one. I don't see it being more than that just because then you get to a point where you're the one in a bad spot all of a sudden. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. You have to be very careful with these bad contracts because, you know, just like you said, Max, uh, I, you, you can't take on too many. And if you're going to take on multiple, the key thing is they better all be short uh, because you don't want to impede your ability to, to move forward with this team. And we still don't understand how much uh, this lost half season, if it is truly lost, will impact kind of future cap calculations moving forward. You may not have the escalator of the cap the same way it's been going. So I think you have to be very smart about what you choose to do. I would agree. Make sure you're supporting, still supporting your local restaurants and businesses at this time. Get some takeout tonight. You deserve it.